It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, everybody. Today, we are thrilled to continue our exploration into vicarious trauma and unsung heroes in our communities. We are so grateful to be joined by two such people, journalists. We'll be speaking with Alex Hannaford and Jeremy Young. Alex Hannaford has worked as a journalist and writer for over 25 years, and since moving to the U.S. in 2003, has focused his work on death penalty, crime, harsh sentencing, religion, culture, and human rights issues. In 2012, he wrote and directed The Last 40 Miles, an award-winning animated short film about the death penalty. He won the 2015 Media Award from the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty and is a fellow of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Jeremy Young is a senior producer with Al Jazeera English Television based in Washington, D.C. He joined the channel before it began broadcasting in 2006 and helped launch Fault Lines in 2009, the channel's award-winning strand that covers the United States and U.S. foreign policy issues. Most of his work has focused on U.S. foreign policy, war, violence, corruption, and politics. He has also worked extensively across the United States and has produced several groundbreaking documentaries in jails and prisons. He previously worked on the production of Deaf in Prison, a program that looks at the lives of deaf inmates. He is a fellow at the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University. Both of you have done such amazing work and critical work, and we're really excited to dive into this topic and hear from your perspectives. Welcome. So great to have you both. Thanks for joining us. You know, I wanted to really paint the contextual landscape, if you will, for our listeners who maybe don't have the same background that you all do in what I would simply call storytelling. Um, but as journalists, I will just share personally, I did my undergraduate to become a journalist. I briefly worked at a local small newspaper and really got some insight into what I believe um, journalists really do, which is serve as a conduit of the truth for the community. And then that kind of parlayed me into my role as a crime victims' rights lawyer, where I felt like I still really got to serve in that role. But for me, the realization and, and really recognition that journalists were exposed to what we would think about as vicarious trauma through the proximity they are in with other survivors of trauma in that storytelling came, this is going to age me a little bit, but after the Columbine shooting in Colorado, I was in high school at the time. And it was the first time as a young kid where I was watching in real time the unfolding of this event. And it was really my awakening to what it means to have firearms violence crisis in the United States, like watching that unfold in front of my eyes, watching the student who fell from the library onto the ambulance in real time. You know, we're, we're watching this happening. And 
I was thinking to myself, like, what must it be like? And this was even before I, I was a journalist myself. I was thinking, what must it be like when you're the person there that's trying to capture this? You're watching it in real time as it's happening. You're then relaying it to other people. And just how must that be impacting folks? And again, this was this was years ago. And I think, you know, the the questions that come up for me are still the same when we watch folks that cover January 6th in Washington, D.C., and how that impacted journalists there watching that event unfold. So in lots of ways, I'm personally really excited to talk to you because these have been the questions we're going to talk about with you all have been things I've been asking myself really throughout my life. And I want the folks that are listening to really hear from you all. How do you identify in the role as a storyteller and maybe Alex, we can we can start with you, and and I really want you to share a little bit about how has the role of storytelling impacted you. Oh my God, that's a big that's a big question. So a little bit of background, I suppose. I mean, I I started out as a journalist on a local newspaper as well in England, and then worked for a bigger sort of regional newspaper in London for uh, a number of years before moving to the States. And before I moved, I was writing about, you know, I was on the, the features desk. So I was writing about arts and music and stuff. And when I moved to Texas in 2003, I found myself on death row within a few weeks interviewing inmates. So I'd gone from writing about sort of fluff, really, mostly to sort of suddenly writing about this really kind of impactful stuff. And then, you know, just by virtue of the fact I was living in Texas, I mean, I was three and a half hours from the Mexican border. It's like the sort of the religious right and stuff and um, politics and prisons and, you know, all the rest of it. So that became my kind of kind of bread and butter, really. But I think the turning point for me when I sort of realized, and I've always kind of, you know, we can get into st- uh, sort of journalism versus kind of opinion and stuff, but I've never, I've written a few opinion pieces, but I've, I've, I really think that we're kind of, I don't know what Jeremy thinks, but oversaturated with opinion at the moment in the, in the uh, media. And I think that I prefer listening to other people. I prefer kind of amplifying their voices and stuff. And so that's been the sort of thread all the way through, whether it be the sort of kind of music journalism or later on kind of more, you know, prisons and stuff. It's always been about telling people's stories. But I think what changed for me, certainly uh, I was writing about, and I won't kind of, we can go into detail more about this later, the Dart Dart Center and, and what it exists for. But just to sort of kind of give you a little bit of background. So in 2012, I was writing about a particularly kind of nasty case of sort of um, child abuse within this church environment in Texas. And I'd written a lot about the border and, and the death penalty and stuff. And I applied for the DART uh, Fellowship, which is called the Ockberg Fellowship at the DART Center at Columbia. And Jeremy had applied. I didn't know Jeremy at the time, but we both applied at the same time and got the fellowship. That's how we met. But that was sort of a turning point, I think, in my career, even though I'd started writing about that stuff, I think that what the Dart Fellowship did was open me up to how I could become a better, kind of more ethical storyteller mm-hmm. when, it, when it came to that stuff. So, you know, in, in a nutshell, the Dart Center exists. And now a lot more organizations that have kind of started to sort of explore those themes as well. But to try and improve the, the knowledge of journalists covering trauma and its impact and stuff. So not just on yourself. So if you were the most obvious example is if you're covering wars and conflict, but also if you're covering some child abuse cases, it can really kind of impact you as a journalist. But then, so the DART exists for that, but then it also exists for, to try and improve your 
knowledge of trauma when it comes to interviewing these people, yeah. people, other people who've been through trauma. Yeah. I really relate to that, Alex, because in our role as lawyers, we talk about how being trauma responsive in your lawyering actually makes you more ethical. It allows you to have more competency. It allows you to build more trusted attorney-client relationships. When you're trauma responsive, you can prepare folks for the activation of their trauma memory and help them sort of navigate that. Um, so it's it's an interesting thread in hearing you talk about how it's prepared you to be a more ethical storyteller. Jeremy, I'd love to hear from you. It's great to sort of see the connection that you both have and, and how you met each other. How have you viewed yourself, Jeremy, as a storyteller and what impact has that had on you? Well, I'll give you an example. You know, some of the stories that I've done have gone back to look at convictions where people are in prison and have been in prison for a long time. And when you go back to look at their case and when you go back to talk to their family, you're opening up a lot, okay? And in some instances, I've done interviews when you turn the camera on with someone who uh, has to talk about the worst thing that ever happened in their life 25 years ago. And when you open up that, lane, you own it. And so when you start talking with someone and building a relationship with them and you ask them to bear all and tell you about what happened and dig deep and, and relive these memories, uh, you also have to be there for that person in the future moving forward. Because when you're done your interview and you walk out the room, you know, that person is still reeling by uh, discussing uh, really, you know, some of the most difficult aspects of their life. And so what's been challenging for me, and, and I, I don't think I'm good at it, but I, I try my best, is keeping in touch with people and maintaining relationships with people after you speak with them and after you mm -hmm. interview them, especially people who are in really vulnerable situations. Because some of the stories that we've done about unfair convictions, people don't get out of prison, even though sort of from a moral perspective, you can understand this 16-year-old kid shouldn't be getting a 51-year mandatory minimum sentence. But that's that's what he has to deal with. And so, you know, we can go through, this was for a documentary I did called 51 Years Behind Bars. And the person who we focused on, he's not getting any relief, even though the story shows that, you know, we know everything about the brain development of youth and, and we understand what sentencing should be like for people who are minors. Well, for some people, they're not going to get that relief. And um, it's important to keep in touch with people and maintain those relationships because, you know, you've really opened up that lane for them to talk about these really difficult aspects of their life that perhaps they've kind of closed off. And as a storyteller, you know, you need to open up that spigot and you need to hear what happened and you need to talk about it and address things. And sometimes it can be it can be really deep. It can be really painful. And mm -hmm. I think it's important as a journalist and a storyteller to understand that you also have a role to uh, be supportive and, and, and not abandon the people that you ask to, to open up their heart for you. Yeah, Lindsay, I know you want to ask a, a follow-up question. And so I'm like anxiously jumping in because Jeremy, one thing that you're highlighting for me that I don't know folks would realize if they haven't had to do the work of journalism is that connection that you're describing where you feel a responsibility and maybe even a desire to, to continue to have relationship with the person whose story you told only comes from humanizing them in the story, right? Like, if the way you did the work was different, you might not feel like there was a need to continue to sort of have that relationship. And I think what we always talk about, right, is is the antidote to trauma is connection. Like that is simply the one thing we know allows people to feel heard, understood after surviving trauma. And so the fact that that connection remains, I think, speaks volumes to really how you're telling the story and how you've humanized them as part of that storytelling process. Yeah, it's also a moral issue. You know, if, if I'm asking someone to bear all and go with me on this storytelling journey, 
And I too, as a journalist, need to be there for them and recognize, you know, I'm not a therapist, but in lots of situations, you know, Alex and I have both done a lot of work on solitary confinement. And when someone sends you a note and they're in solitary confinement, you have to write back to them. You know, they don't have anything else. And, you know, that's just an important part of the role is being there for the people that that you're speaking with. Jeremy, you're bringing up such an interesting point that sort of segues really nicely into the next question is you're talking about with some of these circumstances, even though you objectively think and know that the folks that you're storytelling for and with should have relief, they're not getting it. And one thing that we find in the victim service field that can feel really disempowering as the like advocate or attorney or person working with someone who's experienced harm or violence is that we can't change the circumstances, right? And it's one of the contributing factors when we think about burnout and compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And so I'm curious, is that something that you all think about in your roles, especially given the fact that you are often telling these stories and bringing light to it? And that's sort of the extent in a lot of ways, an incredibly important role. And you can't always change the outcome or circumstance for that individual person. So curious about how how you all think about um, those, if it impacts you, and if it does impact you, which I'm guessing it does, how are you dealing with that? It does. It, it's, it's really challenging. I think in our industry, I think what's important is that you have peer support and that you have people who do the same kind of work that you do that actually under, like if I called up Alex and I said, hey, Alex, you know, I got this phone call today from someone and they were really upset and it was really difficult for me. And they were, maybe they were mad at me because I made them draw up all these memories and now they're going through a, a, a difficult time in their life. And to have people that you can rely on who understand you, that will listen to you. You know, Alex and I are sort of seeking out maybe more formal networks that we'd love to have in place, but right now it's pretty informal. So you better have some friends on your phone. Oftentimes they're journalists or reporters who will take your call and be there for you and provide support for you. So it's a little bit about knowing how to process things and also reaching out for help when you need it and having that network in place that you can rely on. I was just going to kind of add, so I can give you two sort of concrete examples. I mean, I've, we've both covered some pretty horrendous stuff. And I think that there is a conversation to be had on sort of resilience and building resilience. I think that I personally, I feel like I'm quite good at compartmentalizing um, the stuff that I, that I do or have done. One example, I mean, I know one example was I witnessed an execution in um, uh, Oklahoma and I didn't know kind of, you know, how I was going to react to it or whatever. I thought this is going to be kind of maybe tough. I don't know. But I had a two and a half hour drive after from the prison to my sister-in-law's house in Dallas. And I had sort of set up through our mutual friend, Frank, uh, Frank Ockberg, who's a trauma psychiatrist. Um, I'd called him first and said, like, I'm doing this thing. I want to sort of think it'd be a good idea to set up phone calls for that sort of two hour journey and just sort of kind of process what I've seen or whatever. So, you know, my wife was one of them. Frank was another. There was two journalists he'd uh, connected me with in somewhere in the States who had covered a lot of executions and stuff. And I didn't, I didn't know them, but um, they were aware that I would be calling them. It was all kind of emailed beforehand. And on that two hour, I think I spent pretty much the whole journey on the phone with people. Um, Frank, I remember was in a, uh, and he's in his eighties now. 
I remember he was uh, he was in an Italian restaurant somewhere and having dinner with someone, and he kind of ran out of the restaurant with his phone, and it, it was very short and sweet. He was like, "How are you?" And I was like, "Not bad." Like it was weird. He goes, "Yeah, you're going to be fine," <laughs> but you know, he was just there. It was somebody on the other end of the phone. But I think that this goes to what Jeremy was saying. Sort of, my wife's very supportive and understanding, but she's not she's not a journalist, and she doesn't really kind of, I suppose understand like some of the stuff that we've you know you tell her what what i've seen and you know i've seen kind of all this this stuff but unless you kind of go through it as well like jeremy was saying so i think peer support is important and that can be and we can talk about this in a minute but me and jeremy have been involved in sort of more formal peer support gatherings which we've led which i'd, I'd love to tell you about but then in addition to that i think that just an inform these informal things for me it really helps going out for a beer with friends now that's not the same for everybody and i totally get that and some people are like alcohol is the worst thing for me for you know for after this stuff for me it really helps and i'm not talking about going out and getting obliterated i'm talking about i have a really kind of tough day seeing like the bodies of migrants in the desert bloated corpses and i just want to go for a beer and a chat a chat and then afterwards i feel fine yeah Alex, what's really interesting to me, and I suspect you all know this because of your fellowship with the DART Center, in the trauma education that Lindsay and I do, we always frame for folks the principles of what it means to be trauma-informed and have a trauma-informed approach. And of course, one of those pillars is peer support. So it's not surprising that what you're describing as a way that you have dealt with the potential exposure to vicarious trauma through the storytelling of your work is really because you understand the connection, right? The value of the connection. And what's so interesting to me, and Lindsay and I talk about this in our own work, how much bonding happens when you understand each other. And it is quite one thing for someone to tell you they understand and very different for you to know you feel understood, right? Like you're going to the people that make you feel like you are understood in this connection. And so that was really beautiful how you kind of described um, how that's evolved in your own experience. And Jeremy, I, I'm curious from your perspective too, like what what are the tools or strategies that that you have really looked at in building resiliency? And maybe you can even, you know, I was thinking specifically the story that you did on dying inside covering elderly in prison. That was one for me where I just thought, gosh, this is a story where you have to start to connect to the folks, you know, in their lives. And I was really curious, you know, on that example, or maybe even others you want to share how you prepared yourself for the impact of how heavy and meaningful these experiences were and are that you're really responsible for for telling in this trauma-informed way. Well, I think experience helps, right? The, the more you do it, and this is a bit of a catch-22 because the more you do these difficult assignments, the more you get tapped for these difficult assignments, right? Oh, you're someone who has experience dealing with these really difficult themes. You know, you should be the person to do it. So you mm -hmm. kind of get tapped again and again. But I think the experience of doing it um, is helpful for best practices, like knowing sort of how to manage the situation, but it doesn't really make it any easier. You know what I mean? Like you still have to take on that, that story. You still have to understand what people went through. Oftentimes too, like we have to sort through photos or we have to watch videos and we have to deal with a lot of raw materials that have an impact on us as journalists. And that's not easy either. I was going to share with you a quick story. Just I was doing a piece about uh, mental uh, illness in jails and prisons, and I had arranged this interview in Texas, always comes back to Texas, uh, with a woman whose mother had committed suicide in a Dallas jail. 
And it had been really difficult to set up this interview. And I remember flying to Dallas and I was waiting for the rental car shuttle. And I got a call on my cell phone and it was the woman's husband. And she goes, hi, you know, you know, I'm, I'm Larry. And I just wanted to let you know that uh, Diana's not going to be able to do the interview. And I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, it's been really difficult for her. And um, she's not going to be able to do it. And I remember my first instinct as the journalist was, all right, he's on the phone. How are we going to be able to convince? I'm here. I, my boss, I told my boss we're doing the interview. And then I just stopped and I realized that's the wrong thing. That's the wrong thing. And you just have to accept this. Yeah. I say, hey, thank you very much. If she changes her mind, you have my phone number. But you know, thanks very much for giving me a call. And that was a real learning experience for me because all my instincts said, push back, get the interview. This is your job. You know, This is what your boss is going to be angry at you because this isn't happening. But I realized, I don't know exactly how in that moment, that there was something greater than my story at play and that I needed to just kind of take a step back and recognize that what this woman had been through is beyond anything that I could comprehend. And if she wasn't ready to, to do the interview, then, then I shouldn't push for it. So that was a real learning experience for me. It's interesting. We talk in my, my victimology course with my students about what does ethical trauma-informed journalism look like, and they always say choice. And again, that's one of those pillars. But I think folks might not understand the tension that shows up for reporters when the choice of the storyteller is, I'm not ready, or this isn't something that's going to work. And like accepting that choice, really honoring that and, and empowering that decision, I, I think is really the definition of what trauma-informed journalism. And sometimes being trauma-informed means not telling the story. And I think that's a really hard reality to sit with. Yeah. And Jeremy, I was just going to add that I think what you're describing is so natural. And it's one thing that we always talk about with sort of, as we like to say, like baby advocates or baby lawyers, right? is like, of course, we're going to have thoughts and feelings and opinions, right? Like we're human. We're, we live in this world. We Sometimes we disagree with what the survivors we're working with choose to do. And I think it's like almost giving ourselves and in your role, right, permission to like be disappointed, to be upset. That, that felt like a probably incredibly powerful and important story to tell. And so it's okay for us to be upset. And it sounds like what you did was, you know, so beautiful and, and saying like, okay, that's, that's okay. And being okay that someone's going to make a different decision than the one that we were hoping for, I feel like has been, it takes a long time, kind of no matter where you intersect with somebody who's experienced trauma, when you're trying to either tell their story, provide them support, or, you know, offer them something that like, we have to be okay when people make different decisions than sort of what we would hope or expect for. So switching gears a little bit, you know, one of the pieces of this is that these traumatic events can cause and pose such like unique challenges and sort of how you all deal with it. And so one of the things, you know, we talked a little bit about this, but I'd love for you all to tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing together um, to offer and hold space for other folks who've experienced vicarious trauma, um, whether that's through the DART Center and the more formalized things that we, you're doing or the informal spaces in which you're really dealing with the emotional toll. And so, Alex, I'll kick it to you first. Yeah, well, I'll just tell you, out of the Dart Center, there used to be, it doesn't exist anymore, uh, a sort of alumni kind of organization called the Ockberg Society. And I was involved with that. And Jeremy and I went to a place called Oso, Washington, tiny little town in Washington State. And it was a few months after there had been this sort of monumental mudslide and it killed a number of people. And there was a lot of like local news outlets, um, TV, kind of the regional paper, the local paper, 
reporting on it. Obviously, it was a huge story. And what we found through our sort of networks were that there was a lot of reporters who kind of, you know, had never covered anything so sort of traumatic before. So we put together a little team of people to do peer support with them. And it very much was, you know, we rented a, a bed and breakfast, not just for us to stay in, but for to, to sort of to use. It was actually really beautiful, a beautiful setting. They had this kind of lovely garden. The weather was really nice, thankfully, but it was also very close to where this mudslide had happened. So we invited all these journalists to come. There was probably about 10, 10 reporters, I think 10 journalists, and then us. It was me, Jeremy, one or two other people. And we had a, we, through um, our kind of network of trauma psychiatrists and, and journalists, we'd sort of put together this program. It was a, a day-long thing. We included sort of pizza for lunch and beers afterwards. There's a pattern here, right? And um, it was really, I think it was really helpful. And what, there was two things I, I remember from it that I wanted to kind of mention. Number one, we were very clear to begin with that we are not therapists. We're not trained therapists. We're not trying to be therapists. And what we do here may or may not help you. But what we're, what we're trying to do is basically show you that we're peers. We're also journalists who, cut, who have covered some of this stuff. And we've found tools that maybe have helped us. And here's some of those tools. So that was sort of the basis for it. And um, one of the things I remember, there was a, in England, we have this term cub, cub reporter. I don't know if you have it over here, but she was a journalist straight out of journalism school. And she'd got her first job on this local newspaper. And she was, she was from the area. And so when she was reporting on bodies being pulled out of the mud, these were people that she knew. And this was, I knew instinctively that this was probably going to be the most sort of traumatic story she would ever cover. And here it was within the first you know, year of, of reporting. And so that always kind of stuck with me. And I think that what I realized was that it, you know, this stuff is helpful, not just for people who cover conflict. And we have friends who, oh, Jeremy's covered conflict, but we have friends who've been you know, severely injured covering conflict and they need help, but that doesn't lessen the impact some of this domestic stuff happen, uh, has on reporters as well. And they need kind of help and support just as much, I think. I think a, an interesting aspect of the Washington State uh, sort of therapy session that Alex and I did was this was three months after the mudslide had happened. And it was clear to us that none of the local journal they hadn't talked about what they had been through, right? They've been working their ass off, but they hadn't actually talked about like, was, we, we mostly listened, you know, we mostly provide a platform to listen to them talk about what they've experienced. And it was just sort of, again, this is a small community that's gone through this, this horrible, unimaginable devastation. And three months on, they just hadn't talked about some of the most basic aspects of what the experience had been like for them. And so you can imagine that that's also a norm, right? It's not always people able to, and I'm not blaming them for not having best practicing best practices. I'm just saying lots of times the resources aren't there. You have to keep working. It's, it's not as easy to find kind of a therapeutic outlet to help you process what you've been through. I think you're right. And I also think there's this societal narrative, right? That journalists, we almost like dehumanize 
the role in some ways. I always make a joke when I'm doing a training, like I have the two most hated professions in the country, journalism and a lawyer, you know, and like I sort of use it to like be funny and self-deprecating. But I do think we've almost dehumanized the role in a way that we forget that the people telling these stories may know someone, you know, what's coming up for me. And I'm, I might actually get the details wrong. This is more in, in your neighborhood, but the shooting that happened at the local Annapolis paper and the fact that the next day, I'm going to get like emotional thinking about this. They released a paper the next day. And it was from this place, at least my perception of integrity. You know, like we we are human and we're impacted, but our responsibility is to the community. Our responsibility is to show up even when we are personally deeply impacted. And that was really beautiful to me that sort of the ethics and, and the commitment to the role really came out, I think, in the way they responded um, to that particular mass violence. So not something I was prepared to talk about, but just something, Alex, you're bringing up for me as you're describing this young reporter who knew these, you know, individuals um, that were losing their lives. And I, I do think, Alex, you know, I've looked at some of your articles as well and really noticed this theme around how you also have this beautiful skill to humanize people, you know, whether it's about sexual assault survivors who are veterans, work that Lindsay and I have been involved in, um, or even covering the border, you know, the example you mentioned before. And one of the things that I'm curious to know from both of you, and, and maybe we can start with you, Alex, is there are a lot of folks budding into the journalism profession, like you described, Jeremy, that don't have these best practices, don't have the tools, right, Alex, that we want to make available to them. And maybe they're in communities that don't have the Dart Center right there, right, or, or don't have a connection with that resource. What's kind of if you had the magic wand and the thing you would want to give or teach these journalists coming into their profession about the importance of trauma-informed practices, what's the one thing you would really want them to understand? Well, I've always said, actually, that I think what's really needed is for an elective to be sort of almost mandatory in journalism schools around the world on trauma-informed reporting. I mean, it seems like just this, you know, I know that... It, you know, in the past, like I've done a couple of these, um, this is just one one thing like hostile environment courses, right? And you you can, if you're a staff member, I'm sure Jeremy's done a ton of them as well, but you have to kind of re-up them every couple of years. But the but if you're a staff member of a paper, then often they'll pay, they'll pay to send their reporters that are going to be covering conflicts onto these like hostile environment courses. But don't get me started on the cost of these for freelancers. I've been a freelance most of my journalistic career and they're unaffordable and yet i would argue and i don't i can't back this up with statistics that most of the people that cover conflicts for newspapers and magazines are freelance and so and that's just like you know working in hostile environments then you apply that domestically to covering traumatic events of the sort that we just described or whether it be school shootings mass shootings tornadoes hurricanes of you know all of these things i've covered there's nothing that really prepares you for it. And I think that I was lucky enough to meet a bunch of journalists. And really, the Dart Center is a great start, but like they don't, there's no sort of alumni organization. There's a Facebook group. I mean, and they have great resources online. But I want to make it very clear that there are a lot of, there are a lot of organizations that are starting to fill that gap. But I think there's a huge gap in a lack of sort of peer support. And I think that that's something I'm looking at certainly is maybe starting something up that, that, kind of can help offer peer support to to journalists but in terms of getting them while they're young like like cub reporters and stuff or journalism in journalism schools i think that you know there's it's two things it's self it's learning a bit about self-care 
which is not difficult to teach and instill. It's very simple and it should be part of every curriculum, I think. And then the other thing is learning about trauma and its impact on the people that you're going to be speaking to. Because really, you know, we've given a handful of examples, but there are so many examples of, you know, people that you interview that have been through trauma. And we haven't even scratched the surface of the things that cause trauma to somebody. So, Bridget, I want to um, just raise a point that you mentioned, which I think is a, a modern challenge for journalists also, is the dehumanization of journalists in the United States by both media and political figures. And it's hard to maintain your self-esteem and your self-awareness when you're, well, one, the industry has so many problems, but also just the journalists and journalism get so battered. And sometimes it's hard to hold your head up. You know, there's people who appreciate good storytelling and good journalism, but at the same time, journalists are often vilified in American society today in a way that I don't think that we've seen previously. And so when I talk with other journalists, you know, I make sure that they, you know, keep their head high and I try and make sure that I read or watch their work and provide them with feedback on it. But it's hard. I think it's really difficult when major pillars of our society are vilifying journalists, journalism, television, newspapers, and uh, it makes it a little bit more difficult to do your job. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. That's a really good point. And yet we rely on it. Like we we have data that supports actually one of the strongest influences that shapes our view of crime and effective approaches to solve things like crime. One of the strongest influences is actually coverage, is is how we view it in, in hyperlocal media and national media. So it's so important in how we view ourselves in the world, how we view our communities yet we've created this disconnection to the folks that we rely on. And I think there's some real work that could be done to sort of think about how we reframe that. I think one of the like beautiful things about the work that you all do is, is so much in like holding space for and shining light on individual stories, right? Like if that is the piece where like we can acknowledge someone experienced something traumatic like explain and show the the suffering that it caused in their life. Like there is something incredibly beautiful to be able to offer that so that like we're bearing witness, right, to what they've experienced. And we talk about that a lot when we think about, you know, folks like living in conflict areas and and just wanting somebody to be able to bear witness to what they've experienced. And I guess, you know, one of the places we'd sort of like to end with you all is how has the landscape of trauma journalism evolved over time? And like, where are you hoping that it goes? Oh my God. <laughs> um, little question to end with here. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I don't even know if this, how this sort of plays into sort of history of, of reporting of this stuff or whatever, but uh, Jeremy maybe can speak to that. But I think personally, I just got kind of, I think statistics are fairly meaningless. You know, when, you, when I remember doing a story on the, um, migrant camp in Calais in France a bunch of years back where, you know, I just read these statistics about these. Um, and there was like a lot of really horrendous terminology that politicians were using, like a flood of migrants and, you know, the, the, to describe them. And and there was no, I just felt like it, it was meaningless. You know, nobody would be even able to sympathize with these people because we didn't know who these people were. So I, I went into the the tent camps with a photographer friend of mine for the Times of London, the magazine, Sunday Times Magazine of London. And, um, you know, I th even there, you know, it was all very well talking to people and hearing their stories, but 
in my head, I was just like, I just need to find one person, one person's story to tell this bigger story. And I, I found this story about this um, Eritrean uh, kid who had drowned in this very, very small body of water, actually. It was like he was, and I went right to where he had climbed in the water. There was these cross-channel ferries that we have going to the UK from Calais constantly all day long. And he had tried to swim. I mean, the, the, Calais, the, the, the boat was docked, but he had tried to swim sort of just a very short way to, the, to, the, um, to where the boat was docked and climb on the boat. But uh, the storm had kind of rolled in. It was, mid, it was in the middle of the night. He was let, weighed down with clothing and all the rest of it, and he drowned. But I managed to track I'm trying to think it was a long time ago. I don't even know how I did this, but I tracked down his sister and an aunt and I met up with the aunt in London and he was on his way eventually to stay with her. And I just wanted to tell the story about this kid. You know, who was he? What, what football team did he like? What did he like doing? He loved playing with his nephews and really kind of paint a picture of this one kid and his journey. And that was the, the hard part was trying to work out like the journey he had taken because it was obviously he hadn't just gone with one friend. I mean, he'd met multiple people along this journey. So some of it was sort of working out where he probably would have gone and speaking to other migrants who had done the same journey and what they'd kind of faced to try and paint a picture of what he'd done. But I think, yeah, I mean, it, it seems so obvious to me, but then maybe that's the luxury of magazine journalism versus news journalism. I don't know. I mean, certainly with magazine journalism, you want to, you've got the word count to play with description and color and to dive much deeper into somebody's story and, and, and humanize them. Whereas in a news story, necessarily they're a few hundred words and you need to kind of deal in facts and statistics. And not that you don't need to deal in facts and statistics in magazine stories, but you have more room to explore and extrapolate from those, I think. I wanted to share a quick story of, just to show you that like, you know, it's not all gold is, this was a story I did about poultry plant workers who were exposed to COVID-19. Uh, during 2020, during when when really COVID was raging through these poultry plants. And I speak Spanish, and I had convinced this woman to do an interview with us whose husband had died of COVID. And she had also gotten COVID, but she survived. And she told the story to our reporter about the day she went to say goodbye to him at the hospital. She put on the whole suit and she went in and basically said goodbye to her husband. And I'm supposed to be translating from Spanish to English to to share. And I'm just crying, just like I'm, I literally am just sobbing, just sobbing. And I'm trying to get through the translation. And it was just, you know, probably I didn't do great on the translation front, you know, like I, I, it just crushed me, the story. But it just goes to show you that, you know, we're all, we're humans and, you know, we take it on too. And that was an instance where I had worked really hard. I had, I had driven out to Delaware. I had knocked on this woman's door. I, you know, I made a, a pitch to her that we'd like to tell her story. And she said, yes. And it just goes to show you, like, you know, we're human too. And, you know, sometimes our best practices help. And, and sometimes, you know, we need a, a good cry just like anybody else. Yeah, I, I really want to kind of end on that note because, you know, our theme this season is unsung heroes. We're trying to look at the places where people are holding stories of trauma, are working with trauma survivors, but are often in these unseen cracks, right? And I think you all have really beautifully talked about the impact that the role of storytelling has on on journalists. And I'm really excited to know that you all are really champions in the field about how we can shift the landscape and 
when you were talking, Alex, about required education, we say that all the time in our work. Like our dream is that every law school requires lawyers to go through trauma-informed legal representation, that everyone has to be trained on the neurobiology of trauma, the impact on the brain, behavior, how we look for it in places it doesn't exist in the future after surviving trauma. All of that, I think, would be so valuable. And really, we living in the nuance, right? Like, how do we start to live in the nuance of how we learn about our communities through media, through the storytelling that's done? But ultimately, I hope folks are left with, if they are journalists, if they're, if you're listening and you're like, wow, like this is something I'm living with every day and, and I'm looking for places to connect. Obviously, we can post Jeremy and Alex's information. And um, I'm really happy to hear about some of the, the peer support that's being created and built. But we talk a lot about what does it look like to build individual and organizational resiliency? And there are um, really simple things we can do in our daily lives to, to build that proactively as a protective factor. Lindsay and I both have one of gratitude. And occasionally, Lindsay, when I'm having a hard day, will like text me and be like, what are you grateful for? And I just want to express in, in thinking about building resiliency, my, my deep sense of gratitude that I have, not only for the two of you, but the work that you have done to really humanize the people you know that make up our communities and that are often unheard. So I'm, I'm deeply appreciative and really just want to thank you for joining us on season two of Trauma Ties. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for being here. And of course, for our listeners, as you listen to season two, you can subscribe, rate, and review the Trauma Ties podcast wherever you listen. We cannot thank you enough for being on this journey with us. And again, Jeremy, Alex, thanks for joining us. And we will hopefully um, see folks for the next season when we have more untangling. Thank you, Bridget. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.